Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I've got a quick test for you. Word associations. When I say cornflakes, you probably think of nothing, right? Nothing. Cornflakes is one of those foods that just nobody has any real strong feelings about. You could say the same about foods like miso paste and potato starch, even raw carrots. It's pretty safe to say that no grown adult has ever had a single strong feeling about uncooked carrots. And if they had, it probably isn't actually about the carrots, right? Now, what about tofu? Tofu is one of the most hated foods because it's that strange texture. People love it, love it. And then everybody else is like, ugh, tofu. The people who eat tofu now do so because they have strong feelings. The Koreans, they're really interested in that glossy texture, the softness, and the flavor of the tofu. Straight out of the box, cold. I like to parboil it. Eating tofu becomes imbued with a morally righteous sense. The Chinese want a little firmer, I think, because they stir-fry with it. Garlic, ginger. The Vietnamese buy either the soft or the fried tofu. Solidarity with Asians as well as environmentalism, animal rights. And it doesn't really matter what the tofu tastes like. It becomes an ingredient, but not on its own. (laughs) Sprinkle a bit of soy sauce and eat it. So, yeah, people have strong opinions about tofu. But starting about a decade ago, some of them turned a little heavy. There are numerous studies indicating that soy can actually be harmful for you. Those estrogens are in all soybeans. Tofu and the soybeans it's made from became the focus of a health panic. We have come to the point in this society where we're giving this toxic protein to babies. Surely this uh, controversy isn't going to go away. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light. I'm Chris Nuttall-Smith. Tofu, more than most other foods, has a way of soaking up unintended meanings and associations. Depending who you ask, it's a vegetarian superfood that can save the planet or a foreign toxin that's going to kill our babies. But to the people who've always eaten tofu, whose cultures have produced and consumed it for going on thousands of years, tofu isn't any of that. It's just everyday, delicious food. In this episode, Blank Slate, what happens when different groups project their hopes and fears onto a single age-old protein? And can people ever go back to seeing tofu just as what it is? We're in a tofu factory in Portland, Oregon. It's a small producer called Ota Tofu. And when you see how tofu's made, how simple it is, you have to wonder where all those associations came along. Ota Tofu's production space is filled with steam from bubbling pots. There's a man in a smock ladling hot, fresh soy curd into a tofu press. And not far from there, another worker moves 60-pound bags of soybeans. What they do at Ota Tofu, they generally do by hand. 
We are a little bit antiquated and we make the tofu one batch at a time. Really old fashioned here. This is Eileen Ota. She runs this factory, owns the company. Eileen's wearing gumboots and a rubber kitchen smock and a kerchief to keep her hair in place. I got involved because I married into the family. That family and the tofu company it started go back generations. Ota Tofu opened 106 years ago. The shop was started, uh, we think, by two brothers, and we think it goes back to 1911. We have records of that. Oda Tofu is the oldest tofu company in North America. And throughout its existence, through 106 years now, the basic method of how they make their tofu hasn't really changed. They bring in top quality soybeans. Starts with the soybeans, so overnight, you soak those soybeans. They grind the soaked soybeans with some water and a stone grinder until they turn into this liquid soybean mash. And then they simmer that mash in giant pots. That's where all the steam comes from. So this sort of mashed slurry gets filtered. What's left behind after that filtering is soy milk. They add a special kind of salt. And the salt transforms the milk. So now it's filled with super soft, almost cloud-like curds, which they then ladle into a press that's lined with cheesecloth. So the longer you let it press and the deeper you cut it, the firmer the tofu is going to be. And those soy milk curds become blocks of tofu. And that's basically the process. What has changed in all these years is the company's customer base. Back in 1911, Ota Tofu's customers would have been mostly people of Japanese descent. Today, Ota Tofu gets people from all over. They even get people who stumble in on their way to the vegan shopping mall a few blocks east of here. I've always had enough business, and even though the base changes, there's always been somebody there. And we've tried to adapt to the needs of whatever that customer is. That sort of adaptation is at the heart of North America's history with soy. I've had many people, when they know I research soy, we start discussing it, tofu comes up, and they say, I just don't know how to cook it. And so I explain, well, it'll absorb kind of anything. This is Christine M. Dubois, a food anthropologist. I am the author of the forthcoming book, The Story of Soy. Soy has a longer history in North America than you might think. Soybeans have been cultivated here for at least two and a half centuries, since 1765. Farmers used them as a beneficial cover crop and as animal feed. But by the 1860s, they were being used in everyday food and drink. Even during the Civil War, actually, there was soy coffee made for the soldiers. Another place soy foods were common was around the tables and in the tofu shops of immigrants from China and Japan. The Chinese did not keep a directory of tofu makers in the United States, but the Japanese did. This is Bill Shirtliff. He's an influential tofu historian based near Berkeley, California. And according to Bill, the first known tofu shop in North America, or at least the first one he's been able to find records for, was called Wosing & Company. It was in San Francisco. It opened in 1878. And Wosing & Company was the first of many. Around the turn of the century, tofu shops set up all around the western U.S. and Canada. By 1910, there are records of at least two tofu shops in Vancouver, B.C. And there are others by that time in Reno, Nevada, Sugar City, Idaho, Brooklyn, New York, and of course in Portland, Oregon, Oda Tofu. They opened wherever Japanese and Chinese immigrants became established. And so there were hundreds of 
Japanese-American tofu companies, hundreds. All of them selling this fresh, handmade staple food. And then, well... December 7th, 1941. No American will ever forget this Sunday morning in Hawaii. From Pearl Harbor, a sinister plume of heavy smoke rises skyward. War's finger on America's Gibraltar. A lot of times war has pushed soy development forward. There was such a push during World War II to eat soy because the meat was being sent to our soldiers. There were people urging housewives to put ground up soy protein into meatloaves and extending all kinds of meats that when the war was over, it was like soy was the last thing they wanted to eat. It was definitely a war food. But throughout the war, as the use of soy spread across the continent, tofu shops were shuddering. People of Japanese descent were forced into internment camps, and their tofu shops were closed, many of them never to reopen. Eileen Ota. When they were evacuated to the internment camps, um, the tofu shop closed. Uh, Mr. Ota passed away there, and then after the end of World War II, Gina Ota, the wife, came back to Portland. Shina Ota had been imprisoned during the war. She'd lost her husband. But at least in one small way, she made out better than many other people of Japanese descent at the time. She hadn't also had her livelihood stolen from under her. The landlord for Mr. and Mrs. Ota kept their equipment for them. And so when Mrs. Ota returned from the internment camps, she was able to resume making tofu. And that's the Ota tofu we have now. A couple decades after the war, out on the Pacific coast, that tofu historian, Bill Shirtliff, was just a young, earnest man with a shaved head and bright eyes, tuning in to the spirit of the late 1960s. The longer you practice then, I think the less you know what it's about. It's like a palace with so many rooms. The variety of experience that comes in the total simplicity of this way of life is astounding. I was living with Suzuki Roshi, who's a Zen master, at Tassajara, which is in the Big Sur Mountains of California. And we would have tofu probably every day. And it was an inexpensive source of high-quality protein, which is exactly what we were looking for in our vegetarian diet. The way Bill speaks about tofu speaks volumes about how it came to be seen as more and more people started eating it. For the hippies, the commune dwellers, for the brown rice bohemians who took to tofu in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't a source of its own deliciousness. Tofu wasn't even its own thing, really. Tofu in itself is fairly plain, and that's its greatest virtue. It was an inexpensive, high-quality protein. And better still, it wasn't meat. In 1971, a pioneering vegetarian thinker named Francis Moore LaPay published Diet for a Small Planet. That book argued eating meat was a disaster for the environment, even for human survival. It became a major bestseller, and it helped foster a movement that saw eating lower on the food chain, eating for a small planet, as a political act. It was a way to save the world. Bill Shirtliff took that message to heart. Most Americans, unless they had lived in Japan for some reason, had never even heard of tofu. In 1975, Bill and his wife, Akiko Ayagi, set out to change that when they published The Book of Tofu. It was sort of a manifesto, but with recipes, and it became an instant hit. 
The Book of Tofu sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and more importantly, it helped bring bean curd to an eager new audience. And so when our book was published, Akiko and I did a three-and-a-half-month tour around the United States introducing people to tofu through a two-hour program that we had showing slides and talking and so forth. And that was one of the ways that it kind of got started. There were other global events at the time that also helped speed tofu's adoption. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations. Christine Dubois says the Vietnam War encouraged a lot of people to give bean curd a try. Those protesting the Vietnam War are trying to have a more open mind than they feel their government and perhaps their parents have. They want to see themselves more as citizens of the world. And part of that means trying to understand the rest of the world, as they would think of it as rather than just bombing them. Eating soy foods, tofu, soy sauce, to a lesser extent tempeh, becomes kind of imbued with a morally righteous sense in terms of solidarity with Asians, as well as environmentalism, animal rights, solidarity with the hungry worldwide. It's got all these different morally positive connotations. It definitely did reflect values. The people who ate tofu and who eat tofu now, you know, do so because they have strong feelings. In Morningside's food column today, we're going to talk about the white blob that's sitting on the table in front of it. Now, what is it? By December 1980, when this segment of CBC Radio's Morningside was recorded, tofu was fully mainstream. Or at least awkward discussion of it was. It sounds like tofu. Is that what the... What is, it's supposed to be the food of the future. But ironically, the Chinese have been using it for 2,000 years, and the Japanese came in second 1,000 years later. But I want a reason to eat it. Now, what's it taste like? Well, please, help yourself. Wallpaper paste? (laughs) In spite of the uncertainty, tofu consumption in North America continued to climb. Before long, you could get tofu lasagna, tofu nuggets, tofu turkeys. Tofurkey's not a turkey. It doesn't run or fly. It looks a little mushy, doesn't have a turkey tushy, but I'll give it a try. Even tofu ice cream. Now I can finally enjoy the ice cream taste without the dairy ingredients. Dreamy tofu. If I didn't know better, it'd say Macal Bessie made it herself. The number of tofu shops increased, and the number of people buying tofu increased, and soon it became available in supermarkets and Trader Joe's and typical grocery stores. By 1995, even the planet's most famous cartoon vegetarian... Isn't there anything here that doesn't have meat in it? Lisa Simpson had discovered tofu hot dogs. Tofu? But a lot of those new tofu eaters also projected their own values onto the stuff. Here's Bill Shirtliff. For the mainstream, it was a statement, maybe more than anything else, of how they wanted to live in a way that was healthy and good for the planet. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. 
So tofu was going to save the planet. And don't forget, it was also a way to protest the Vietnam War. It became a symbol for the animal rights movement, for people who opposed the slaughter of farm animals for meat. And it also became a manifestation of a pretty long-standing and problematic stereotype. (laughs) No, grasshopper, not in memory, but in your deeds. Tofu was conveniently packaged, flash-pasteurized Asian exoticism that you could dip in bottled hoisin and eat. The mysticization of soy and tofu is because it's foreign, I think, because of the countercultural influence and the beat generation and all that. Soy is seen as this like ancient wonder food handed down to us from the ancestors, kind of stereotypical wise Asian person handing this along to us. I will treasure this lesson, Master. In case the blocks of soy that North Americans were eating didn't yet come with enough baggage, in 1999, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration allowed tofu makers to print a key health claim on tofu packages. That claim promised that eating tofu could lower bad cholesterol and reduce the risk of heart disease. The perception of tofu, I would say, got better and better as more and more scientific articles came out showing the benefits of eating soy foods and eating a vegetarian diet. The other thing that happened around the same time is people started noticing that soy was in everything. In the last few decades, concentrated soy byproducts like soy protein isolate, soy lecithin, mono and diglycerides, all sorts of soy-based food additives had quietly become a major part of our daily diets. Soy became all but impossible to avoid. So, of course, the backlash was bound to arrive. Is soy safe? Is it good for us? Is it bad for us? It's fed and fueled by estrogen. Can too much be a bad thing? Here's Christine Dubois. There was the discovery in the middle of the 20th century that sheep in Western Australia eating a certain kind of clover were uh, losing their fertility. The particular clover that these sheep were eating was very high in isoflavones, which are plant hormones that were in that clover, and similar ones are also in soybeans. Those isoflavones, the plant hormones, can mimic human estrogen. And estrogen can play a role in some cancers, including breast cancer. And that has created concern that in eating soy, maybe we're messing with our own hormone balance. In 2001, a pair of medical studies linked the consumption, not of tofu or of any actual food, but of concentrated soy hormone supplements with the growth of breast cancer cells. The studies were not conclusive. And by the way, the bulk of medical research has shown just the opposite, that soy consumption is actually beneficial in preventing cancer, if it does anything at all. But a headline, no matter how suspect, is still a headline. And soy causes cancer wasn't the only bit of terrifying news. In the space of just a few years, there was a surge of anti-soy headlines. Soy causes thyroid damage. Soy causes ADHD. Soy causes erectile dysfunction and infertility and uncontrollable flatulence. Some people even tried to link soy consumption to violent crime. But Christine Dubois sees all the health claims, positive and negative, in simpler terms. All of the scientific evidence says this is not a poison and it's not 
a panacea. It's a food. My memory of tofu goes back to my childhood in Vietnam, and each neighborhood has its local sort of shacks and shops. This is Min Sai. He runs a tofu company called Hodo Soy in Oakland, California. I just remembered、um, being taken by my grandfather to the neighborhood tofu shack, and just remembering the smell of the soy milk and the tofu coming out of the shop. So it's it's beany, it's nutty, it's buttery, and it's warm, comforting. Min's family moved to the U.S. when he was 11 years old in 1981, and through his life up to that point, sure, he liked tofu. It was a part of his everyday existence, but he didn't ever really think about it. Because in Asia, we've grown up eating tofu for a couple of thousand years, so for us, it's just a part of the fabric of everyday shopping and eating. It's kind of like here eating burgers or fried chicken. In his new home, Min adopted the local diet. When I first got here, I drank a lot of cow milk and ate a lot of American food just through the school lunch program and such. And so it, it wasn't until many years later that I decided that I want to eat really good tofu again. For the first time in his life, Min had to actually think about tofu because where he was living then in San Francisco wasn't as easy as just strolling to the local neighborhood tofu shack. I think, generally speaking, if you go into a supermarket in North America, you'll find a really firm tofu that has practically no flavor, chalky texture. That's more or less it. They are providing for a customer base that sees tofu as a meat substitute. So they were making firm, meat-like tofu, tofu that does not fall off the grill. The thing that bothered Min the most was a lot of people here didn't even know what they were missing. They didn't get that tofu could taste like something more than just this soulless beige-colored protein. Min had studied economics; he was working in finance at the time. But in his off hours, he started making tofu. It was a hobby at first, and then he figured maybe he could build it into something more than that. I thought that if I can find a way to disrupt it. Through just making something different and unique and taste delicious, I might have a shot. He launched Hodo Soy in 2004. Like most new food business entrepreneurs, he spent his first few years hand selling his creation at farmers markets and specialty stores face to face. That was really a great launching pad to get new consumer to think about tofu differently and to have a narrative and a conversation about. Well, you know, you don't have to eat it just because it's vegetarian. You should eat it because it's tasty. And the thing that got people, that helped them become more than just a weekend tofu warrior, was that Min's tofu actually was tasty. It tasted a lot like the tofu he'd eaten as a kid. If you come and tour our plant, you you get the same sense of smell that I described earlier, which is a very, you know, creamy, nutty, buttery. A rich and warm smell, and a lot of that smell and that warmth comes from the fact that、uh, we make a really thick soy milk. It's got more fat. It's got almost twice the amount of protein per serving, and、um, it's got a sweeter, creamier texture. It's not chalky, so that's the main difference. Just tastier. Hodo's grown in the last few years, and these days the company does a lot more than just.
block tofu. They've even started selling yuba, these incredibly delicate, delicious sheets of tofu skin that they pull from the top of the hot soy milk. It's important to say here there are loads of other excellent tofu makers around North America doing some pretty delicious things. In a lot of major cities, you can find Korean tofu stew specialists who make their own super soft tofu from scratch daily. My favorite in Toronto is this out-of-the-way mom-and-pop place called Chodang Sundubu. And there's been a boom clear across the continent of shops that make the fresh pudding tofu called Tofu Fa. There's a saying that says, the hardest tofu to make is the softest. And that's the softest tofu. Fa is a flower. Daofu Fa is really the silkiest of silken tofu that you eat with a delicious ginger syrup. In the last few years, Hodo has become the darling of glossy food magazines and of some of the continent's best-known chefs. Min's calling, maybe above all others, is to prove to as wide an audience as possible that tofu isn't just another blank slate. That, in fact, tofu isn't a blank slate at all. Because you know that thing people always say about cooking it, that tofu will absorb whatever flavor you soak it in? It turns out they're wrong. That whole story's wrong. Most of North America has been totally out to lunch about cooking tofu for decades now. Tofu leaches water between the soy milk and the coagulant. That bind, it's a very weak bind. So H2O is constantly leaching out of it. So if you try to, to soak it or marinate it, it's not absorbing it's really just constantly pushing something out. So if you get a bad tofu block and you marinate it for days, you know, and you cook it, you're only going to taste whatever flavor on the outside of that tofu, on the surface of that block. The inside remains chalky and bland. Which is fitting. Maybe, just maybe, all the other stuff that tofu's absorbed in all these years, the values, the fears, the wild health claims, maybe soon tofu will push all those things out too. So I brought peanut oil for the walk because if I didn't, my grandmother would be very upset. So we'll just season the oil a little bit with the chili. Missy Hoy, chef de cuisine at Fabrica Restaurant in Toronto, she is one of the most curious chefs I know. And when I asked her if she could cook some of this famous hodo tofu we were getting shipped out from California, it took her about 38 seconds to respond. It's very exciting. I grew up eating a lot, a lot of tofu. Asian style. My father's from Hong Kong. I don't know where it came from, uh, but there were these like white pails, like a three liter pail with a lid on it, packed in water, like these little like square bricks you would get. And I'm, I'm fairly certain there wasn't even a brand on it. Like it was just, they could have been making it in store. I don't even know. And we would take it home and it was like the mystery item in our fridge that my sister and I never quite understood. In what I'm learning is her classic style. Missy has gone all out. I brought my wok from home because I feel like you can't fully experience proper stir-fried tofu or anything like that without the wok. She's got this ridiculous mise en place spread out all over the counter. There are tons of little containers filled with chopped ginger, sliced radish. A cabbage, get some bean sprouts in there. 
long cucumber matchsticks, scallions, potato flour for dredging, bonito flakes for the deep-fried tofu dish called agadashi tofu. Yeah, it would not be agadashi without some bonito. All sorts of sauces. And just a little black sesame seed. I love black sesame seed. She even brought a fresh hunk of wasabi. But the most important ingredient is the one I brought, the tofu. So I'm going to quickly flash fry some of the tofu to put in this stir fry, and we'll see kind of how it holds up. She cuts up one of those blocks and tosses the cubes through the potato starch, then straight into the deep fryer. And she does this really complex, super spectacularly delicious-looking stir-fry of not just tofu, but stir-fried cashews and ginger and even deep-fried eggplant. Because I really like fried eggplant with fried tofu. I know it's a classic combination, but it's just, I can't, I couldn't resist. Getting really hungry here, Missy. That's good, because I probably have enough food for like eight people, so... <laughs> Oh, right, and that tofu skin that Hodo makes, the yuba? Missy's taken a giant sheet of that yuba and wrapped it around a block of Hodo tofu. And then, as if that isn't enough, she's brushed all that down with honeyed, five-spiced char siu sauce and roasted it, almost the way you'd do a duck. Okay, so let's get this to the table and uh, we'll start eating. Beauty, what can I grab? I'm going to grab this. By the time we sit down, the table is heaving with pots and platters. Okay, let's do this. Where where, where should we start? I think we just go right into the cold. I think it's going to give us kind of the best indication of what the product is by itself. Doing it. We start with just that, plain tofu. Missy's plated it with some quick pickled cucumber and coriander leaves and some chili soy sauce. Even without the dressing, it does have a lot of flavor. It's almost nutty. There's some substance to it. You feel like you're eating a complete thing. I mean, it's kind of beautiful. I, I completely agree. It's it's uh, it's not, it's unlike any tofu I've had, that's for sure, and I've eaten a lot of tofu. That straight-up tofu has exactly none of the insipid chalkiness that you often get in the supermarket stuff. But more to the point, the texture, the flavor is rich and totally satisfying. In this scenario, like, I miss nothing. Missy's agadashi tofu is delicious, and that stir-fry is also pretty great. Actually, you make a really good (laughs) stir-fry. Really good. But the tofu dish of Missy's that seriously blows my mind is that roast she made with the block tofu, the yuba, and the char siu glaze. Getting inside... Oh, my God. So it should be nice and crispy on the outside, and we should have, like, really kind of, like, creaminess on the inside where the tofu has steamed itself inside the pocket. Yep, it's got all that. So we'll see how that how that holds up. If the words roast tofu don't get you all in a hungry lather, that's because you've never had this stuff. Oh, wow. Missy's roast tofu is crunchy and creamy, and the smell of it, the nuttiness and the beany depth is all woven in with star anise and Szechuan peppercorns and the honey from the glaze. I'm really enjoying this crispiness. Like, it's, like, just the way that it flaked up, uh, it fried almost like, like duck skin. It is exquisite. The creaminess inside, and then you've got this beautiful, beautiful dark skin that's sweet and savory on the outside. This is unbelievable. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Like, I wish I had uh, made this at home. <laughs> Have you ever made this before? This? No, this was just an idea um, when you said you were bringing Yuba. I was like, you know what? I want to try this. Yeah, it's all about textures. You need a balance. She just pulled this recipe pretty much out of her head. Oh, my God. 
my love of tofu has only increased with my knowledge of how to prepare it and like how simple and how complex it is and like i said it's kind of magical like it's it's produced almost from nothing and that right there that idea that the ingredient at the heart of this dish is just some beans and a bit of salt and a few thousand years of human experience when you're eating something this incredible and this simple it can't help but bowl you over because it's not a meat substitute. It's not gonna save the planet or poison anyone's babies. And I'm gonna say that it's pretty unlikely this tofu dish will cause violent crime or save anybody from a heart attack. What it is, is just really unforgettably delicious food. It's tofu and a bit of sauce. Yeah, I'm really happy with this actually. Yeah, I could eat this three times a week. <laughs> Amazing. So we're just uh, I'll book those days off. That'll go really well. <laughs> this is The Fridge Light. And the voices you heard today were Eileen Ota of Ota Tofu, Christine Dubois, author of The Story of Soy, Bill Shirtliff, who wrote The Book of Tofu, Min Tsai of Hoto Soy, and Missy Hoy, the excellent chef de cuisine at Fabrica Restaurant in Toronto. Thank you, Missy. Thank you all. This episode was produced by Veronica Simmons, Steve Brereton, Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Nottle-Smith. Additional music is by Paolo Petropaolo. Our executive producer is Arif Narani. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please write us a review. And please, if you don't mind, try to avoid the words rampant flatulence. For more info on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. And you can also connect with us on Twitter and share photos of your greatest tofu creations on Instagram at FridgelightCBC. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.